I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to uh, John chapter 14. I, I personally never think that I'm going too slow through any kind of uh, teaching in the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John. But if it seems we're going real slow, it's for a reason. Uh, there, there's so much richness in, in, in the Word of God, especially in the Gospel of John, and especially as we're going through this last week of Jesus in his earthly ministry before going to the cross. And we see that because we see how long of a section there is between the time that Jesus enters into Jerusalem and by the time he gets to the cross. And there's still, we're gonna, we're gonna be in the upper room through chapters 14, 15, and 16. And 17, of course, possibly, but uh, after that, then, of course, we go directly to uh, the sufferings of Christ before he goes to the cross. Well, that being said, we arrived at a statement that Jesus made first and foremost directly to Peter, but also to his disciples and also to us who are believers in Jesus Christ and all believers since the time of the Upper Room Discourse. And what Jesus said was, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In our last study of verses 1 and 2, we focused our attention on the fact that as believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this world is no longer our home. We are sojourners and strangers in a foreign land, traversing this earth on our way to our real home, in our Father's house. We're no longer impressed with the things of this world because our minds and our affections are aiming toward a new country, toward a new city, neither of them made with human hands. This brings to mind the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he says to them, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Listen to what he says, if you then be risen with Christ. Well, of course, the implication is you're, you've been buried with Christ through baptism and you were raised out of the water in newness of life. And this is the importance of, of that, that symbolism of baptism, that if you are then risen with Christ out of the water, those of you that might have gotten baptized recently or will want to be baptized here soon again or whenever, but uh, if, you were, if you remember your baptism, we didn't leave you in the water. We let you come out. It's a picture of rising from the dead. So if you're then risen with Christ, then we are to seek those things which are above. 
And that seems to be the problem in the church today, a major problem in the church, is that there's so much world in the church that there is not enough church in the world to share the light of the glory of God and of Christ in these last days when we see already so clearly the day of Jesus Christ approaching. I, I have to tell you, and I, I said this on Wednesday night, that Hurricane Harvey is not just another hurricane. The eclipse was not just another eclipse. Things are happening at a rapid pace, both signs in the heavens, signs on the earth. bringing us to a, an understanding that Jesus can come at any moment. So rather than seeking the things that are on this earth, the Lord's going to provide for our every need. We need to seek those things which are above. And notice that Paul says where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Focusing our attention, you see, on him and focusing on eternity. Set your affection on things above. That means put your heart where those things are above, not things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So when Christ who is our life, and look, listen to that, don't, don't skip over that. When Christ who is our life, he is our life. Doesn't he say in verse six of John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life? when Christ who is our life shall appear, which tells us something, he's gonna appear. So we need to be ready for his appearing. Then shall you also appear with him in glory. We'll talk about that appearing in just a moment. But this earth, this world is not our final destination. And the Lord Jesus knew this better than anyone. He knew the pain and the suffering his followers would endure while serving him in this world. We saw that at the very beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. He knew that even uh, that evening, he knew that evening that his closest disciples were going to be even more troubled than they already were. And Peter would be the most troubled of them all. Peter says, why can't I go where you're going? Are you going to be able to suffer the things that I'm suffering, Peter? Let me tell you, Peter, that before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And we can see clearly that Jesus was speaking to Peter directly from the end of chapter 13 through the very first verse of chapter 14 because Jesus said, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a quick little Greek lesson here that, and, and a lesson on, on the reliability of the King James Version of the Bible. Because the word thou in, verses, in, in verse 38 is singular. And, he, and Jesus says to him, will thou? See, there's four words. Thee, thou, thy, thine. They're all singular. This is the importance of the King James Version. This is why I like to use it. Because the translators made it very clear to whom Jesus was speaking. In the more modern translations, there's always only the you, and, and sometimes you is singular, sometimes you is, is, is plural. The King James translators made that very clear. Jesus was speaking directly to Peter. But as he continues, Jesus now adds the disciples and all future followers together in his exhortation to Peter, because then he says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Two things, your, collectively you all, let you, not your heart, and notice that heart is singular, your heart together, 
as one church, as one body. Let it not be troubled. Ye believe in God. The ye is, again, plural. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. So the personal pronouns in the King James Version are designed to make clear to whom the Lord is speaking. So when he says in verse 2, in my father's house or many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye. And the implication of the word ye is ye yourselves may be also. So there, is, there was a need then to let them know that it was his intention to return for all of his disciples and all of his followers down through the ages, not at the time of their deaths. The reason I bring that up is because that is the position of many today who do not hold to what is called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church position. That there is going to be a rapture, a, a snatching away of the church before the seven years of tribulation is going to take place. Many of, uh, of these who don't hold to rapture, either they hold to a different time of rapture happening or they don't believe in the rapture at all. But either way, they say, well, what Jesus meant here was that he's going to come at the time of their deaths for them. So it is tremendously significant that the scriptures never speak of death as an event in which the Lord comes for a believer. What it does tell us can be found in, in, in a statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 22, when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we're told in verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now look at verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Notice by whom? The angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Lazarus was carried, the rich man was buried. Make your choice. I think I'd rather be carried by the angels. So if that's not enough, there's also the account of Stephen in the book of Acts who, when facing his own death, we're told this in, in, in Acts 7, as he's before the religious leaders of the Jews, after the church was now, after Pentecost, was now actively bringing the message of the gospel to many people. In Acts 5:54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart because Stephen gave this tremendous discourse about Christ. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right, uh, standing on the right hand of God. So now we know where Jesus is when he sees this vision. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they ran upon him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Shaul, Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord. Now Stephen was calling upon God and said, Lord, receive my spirit. And once again, the implication isn't that Jesus comes to get him. He is going to be carried receive my spirit to Jesus who was standing at the right hand of the Father. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we never see in scripture where the Lord himself, Jesus, comes 
to take a person at their death. And the Saul that is mentioned here, Saul of Tarsus, would become the Apostle Paul. And Paul would add something to this when he writes to to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, and he says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Notice verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And once again, there is that understanding or the implication that it isn't that Jesus comes to us to gather us, as we saw with, with Lazarus, the angels carried him into the presence. They call it Abraham's bosom, but really it was the presence of the Lord. So the more that we look at the statement made by Jesus in John 14, verse 3, when he says, and I go and prepare a place for you, the more evidence is given that Jesus coming again is not only a future return, but specifically a return for his church at the event known as the rapture of the church. The tense now in which the verbs go and prepare are found signify actuality and single acts. They are things that Jesus said he is going to do. I go somewhere to prepare a place for you, and when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I prepare something and come and gather you unto myself. So all of these verbs are, are in this, this, this aorist tense, which signify actuality and single acts supporting his coming again. There is also the understanding that this coming again is counterpoint to his going away, which is a good understanding, good thought as well, because consider this. If you, if you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, now, eight, we're, we're all familiar with verse 8 where Jesus himself, before he ascends into heaven after the resurrection, he says to the church, to the 120 that are gathered at Pentecost, he says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. But notice the next part. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked up steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. <coughs> Excuse me. Which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall, come, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. As you've seen him go, you will see him come. He's, he's taken up, lifted up in a cloud. And, 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 and these angels obviously are saying, as you have seen him go, so shall you see him come. This is not a spiritualistic thing. No, as you have seen him go, you see him come. And another thing to realize is that Jesus was speaking of something that was really completely new. No prophet had promised this. And except for a number of hints and suggestions and references to a snatching away to rescue and deliver, like Enoch became one of those hints of the snatching away of the church, or Noah and his family rising up above the, you know, the, the destruction of the world by the flood. And there are a number of others, in fact, 
But uh, except for those references, not so much a Jewish remnant, but those followers who love, that, that Jesus loved to the end. This is who he's speaking to. The disciples and the disciples' disciples and the disciples' disciples and the disciples' followers until it comes to us. All who have believed in Jesus Christ, all whose lives have been changed miraculously from death to life, all who he loved to the end, as he said in verse 1 of John 13, how he loved them to the fullest extent of his love. <clears throat> Hence, Jesus promised to receive. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, receive you unto myself. That word is, a, is the word paralambano in the Greek, and it, it literally means to take, to catch, to snatch, and to draw near. And that's the important thing about receiving. It's not just to take and to snatch and, and, and to catch and to draw, but to draw near, to bring near, to receive into his own heart, to receive into his own life. And so Jesus promised to receive collectively those that he loves unto himself, contrasts greatly with what we call the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, many times we hear about the second coming of Christ, and we think that it's the same event with the rapture of the church, but it's not. They're two very different, different events. And Jesus coming to establish his kingdom over the earth is the second coming of Jesus Christ that happens actually at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. But Jesus coming to establish his kingdom over the earth, I mean, because first of all, if, if that's the second coming, first of all, as far as we look at the second coming of Christ, he comes for his saints. That's not the second coming. If he comes for his saints, that's the rapture of the church. Let me get myself in the right place here. because I don't want to confuse you. So his coming for his church contrasts to the second coming of the Messiah. Jesus coming to establish his kingdom. That's the second coming. Again, first of all, he comes for his saints to take them to the Father's house and eventually to and for the wedding feast, which we call in the scriptures the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the second thing is that at the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints. So for the rapture of the church, it is Jesus coming for his saints. In the marriage supper, or I should say the second coming, it's Jesus coming with his saints to establish his millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Two different events. They can't be confused. And in Scripture, they're not. But man oftentimes confuses them. But to add proof to the fact that Jesus was speaking of the rapture of, church, of the church in John chapter 14, it is good to draw a comparison with one of the classic rapture passages in Scripture, which of course for us is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I'd like for you to turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because we want to make a very important comparison between what Jesus says in three verses to what, he, what Paul says in, verses, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, which is six verses. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But I would not have you be, to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep, in other words, those who have passed or have died, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, which literally means to precede them which are asleep. We who are alive will not precede those who have died in Christ. 
And then he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain. Now I think that that's pretty clear. If we see clearly that he's talking first about the dead in Christ, well, we know one thing, the dead are dead. But what he says is, the Lord is going to come and he's going to give this shout and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. That's resurrection. And then we which are alive and remain, that's us, like we see each other, we're not ghosts here. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word is harpazo, caught up, snatched away, together with them in the clouds. Now, folks, only God can do that. Only God has the power to do that. Well, because God is the God of the impossible. And whatever is impossible to man is not impossible with God. So this, you know, I mean, somebody probably is saying, what, 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 was, what was Paul smoking when he read, wrote this? Nothing. He was receiving this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They, then we, he says, we, he includes himself. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he tells the church, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I just don't understand where people who just, they just have a problem with the rapture of the church. So some people just say, I don't believe in the rapture. Well, then you don't believe in comforting the church. Going through the hardest of times. Well, I don't think the rapture is going to happen at this such a, well, why, why do you think? Or why, why are you creating something that, you know, as, as, as doctrinal when you don't even, it hasn't happened yet. Just take the word for what it says. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The word, the whole word and nothing but the word. So the comparisons now have been made by, by a number of Bible students wanting to affirm the timing of the event of the rapture and the, and the, and the event itself. So the first thing to do is attempt to make a comparison of a rapture passage and a second coming passage. Well, we can do that. We're not going to do it tonight, but you can do it. You can take verse, you know, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, as we just read, and then read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11, 21. I can tell you this. You'll see Jesus on a white horse. And it tells us that there will be those who are with him on horses. See, I wonder who they are. Well, if he's coming with his saints to establish his kingdom, which is, this is what chapter 19 of Revelation is all about, then these are two, ter I mean, very different uh, passages. And when you compare, there are no significant parallels found at all. No significant parallels found between the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19. The conclusion is that the scriptures are describing two, uh, two distinctly different events. But when comparing John 14 verses 1 through 3 with 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, there are amazing parallels. Are you ready? The first parallel is found in verse 1 of John 14. It's the word trouble. Let not your heart be troubled. Compare that to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, where he uses the word sorrow. And where he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not. 
that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So notice the comparison, because the trouble of, of John 14 and the sorrow of 1 Thessalonians 4 is very similar in meaning and understanding. And then there's the second thing, and that is belief. Verse 1 still in John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. What do we find Paul saying in, in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4? He says, for if we believe, very same word, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So if we believe, so there's the comparison of the word believe in, 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 in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. And then we read again in verse 1 uh, uh, the, message, the, men, the mention by Jesus of God and me. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And we find Jesus and God mentioned in verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So there, there's very similar usages of both terms in those verses that we just read, verse 1 and verse 14. And then there's the phrase in verse 2 of John 14, which is, uh, told you. If it, if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have said something to you, right? But if you look at verse 15 of, of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, for this we say unto you, we are telling you. Jesus said, if it hadn't been so, I would have told you. Paul is looking at it from, a, from, from the more uh, uh, stated position that he says, for this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. So it's the same understanding. If I wasn't so, I would have told you but Paul is saying, I've told you, I said it. So then we move on to the uh, verse 3 in, in, in the gospel. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's the idea of coming again. That's verse 3 of John 14. You look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 again, and it says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto what? the coming of the Lord. So in John 14, Jesus says directly, I will come again. And, P and Paul mentions the fact that we are going to, we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them or prevent them which are asleep. And then there once again in verse 3, where, where, uh, where Jesus says, and I will receive you unto myself. I will receive you. And that coincides with being caught up in verse 17, where it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Receive you, as we said, to take you, paralambano again, to take you and to catch you and to snatch you and to draw you right near into my heart is the same thing that, is, that the word harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, uh, 17 means to catch them up together, to snatch them away. And then he says, and receive you unto myself, to myself. And again, in verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to what? To meet the Lord. To myself. Well, when you're getting brought in and drawn in by Jesus, aren't you going to meet him? <laughs> you're going to meet him. How many of you are ready to meet Jesus? How many of you want to meet Jesus? Man, I do. How blessed are those? And Peter makes mention of this in his in his 
epistle. The blessing of those who have never seen him but yet love him. We can't wait to see him. To myself, to meet the Lord. Same concept, same idea. And then lastly, again in verse 3, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am. And in verse 17, ever, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Where I am, there you will be also. Ever with the Lord. So when you consider this comparison, the conclusion you should draw is that the words and the phrases parallel almost exactly. They follow one another in both passages in practically the same order. And in each case, only those righteous are dealt with. It's not everybody. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So only those whose lives have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ are dealt with. There are no irregularities in the progression of words from beginning to end. And from both columns, believers are taken from the troubles and trials of the earth to the glorious majesty of heaven in both troubles, in both sorrows. What we've learned is that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ first revealed the church's blessed hope because this is the church's blessed hope mentioned by, by Paul to Titus. But we've learned that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ first revealed the church's blessed hope on the very night before his crucifixion to his beleaguered disciples who were grieving over his impending departure. Later, the Apostle Paul would explain the prophecy of the rapture of the church in greater detail for the purpose of giving comfort to the Thessalonian church who faced the similar problem of departing loved ones. And not only there, but in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well, where he talks about in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, of an eye at the last trump, we shall all be changed. Metamorphosis, metamorphosis, we'll be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, and who can do that? But the God who is the God of creation, the God who is the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end in all of our lives and in all of the people that he's created. And as the Lord Jesus was unveiling this new truth, he would say three times that his disciples couldn't bear the full revelation of his teachings at, at that time, but they would be given to them at a later time after the Holy Spirit would be sent. So I'd like for you to consider John 14, verses 16 and 17, and I'll, I'll do this quickly, just read through these. But Jesus said to his disciples later on in John 14, we'll come back to these and, and study them. He said, I will pray and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, a paracletus, another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And then in verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. Notice, he shall teach you. You haven't got the full revelation yet, but he shall teach you. All things and bring the things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. There'll be times when the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and now all of a sudden we start remembering the things that we learned in the past, things that we needed to remember but didn't have, you know, I mean, they're, they're in there. 
somewhere. Hopefully they're here and here. God brings a message to our hearts and it awakens our understanding of what we've learned. Well, can you imagine the, 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 the disciples themselves who had heard so many things from Jesus? Then with the power of the Holy Spirit, they were remembering. Remember what Jesus said about this and this and this. And it was used in their ministry. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. I need to go away. For if I do not go away, or if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then, verses 13, I'm sorry, uh, John 16, verses uh, 13 and 14. I don't know if I, I mentioned John 16, verse 7. But uh, John 16, verses 13 and 14, this is a very significant uh, passage because Jesus said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And notice this, and he will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. Well, 2,000 years later, we're seeing things that were to come, and they're here. They're here now. He shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. <coughs> so, the importance then of seeing John 14, verses 1 through 3, as a statement of Jesus affirming and confirming the rapture of the church before the time of great tribulation. Now getting back to our text, now Jesus' des destination is going to be under discussion. His destination. In verse 4, what Jesus said was, and whither I go, I know, I'm, I'm, whither I go, where I go, you, you know, and the way you know. And again, he's speaking plural, so he's speaking to all of his disciples. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now Thomas, who we like to call Doubting Thomas, but I think that that's a little too crude. Nonetheless, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. We don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Now the disciples were not so sure where he was going. Now they kind of thought and they kind of knew. Don't forget that he had to go to the cross first. So that's where he was going. He told them that. Then he told them he was going to his father's house. He was going to go prepare a place for them. So he told them where he was going. So he says, I'm the way. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, I'm paving the way. I'm, I'm trailblazing the way for you at the cross in my ascension, in my time in heaven until, it's, until the Father sends me to gather the bride. And I'm the truth, so I'm not telling you anything that's just a bunch of hogwash. And I'm the life, the life that you are going to have forever. So they weren't sure where he was going. But all they needed to do was remember from where he came, see? Where did he come from? Jesus had come from glory. He spoke of this many times, especially in the Gospel of John, about coming from the Father, coming from heaven to this earth. Now he was on his way back to glory by way of the cross. But here is the reality. Before he came, now stay with me here. Before he came, there was no way. 
Before he came, there was no way. Only prefigured illustrations and types in the sacrifices of Israel. But the scars of Calvary, the scars of Calvary on his body would attest to the price that he paid to blaze that trail for us back to God. The trail that had been covered over, almost wiped over by sin at the fall in the garden. And because of that, Jesus said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity, hostility between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that spoke directly to Jesus on the cross, the bruising of his heel. But he was gonna crush the head of the serpent on the cross. And by the way, he did, he did. Now the disciples actually knew the way because they knew him. They knew Jesus and he was the way. So they knew. But you ever, you ever been in that position where you know but you don't know? <laughs> now come on, you don't, be, don't, 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 don't make me feel like I'm the only one that goes through that. I know but I don't know. I mean, I want to know more. You know, sometimes we just, this is the way our faith kind of runs, you know, up and down. Oh, I know. Well, I think I know. Well, I know. Well, I think I know. Oh, I trust the Lord. Well, I th think I trust the Lord. <laughs> right? That's, uh, we shouldn't be on that roller coaster very long. We should always remember to stay up here. But Thomas asked a question that maybe more people should ask. And we can, you know, we can thank him for asking this. You know what he asked? He said, how can we, how can we know the way? Uh, I think at some point, many of us asked that question. When somebody told us about Jesus. When somebody told us about our sin and we realized that if we, if we died that very moment, that we, we'd be separated from God forever. So how can, I, how, how can I know the way out of that? And we tell them about Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross. How he shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins. How he died and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Fulfilling the scriptures. How can we know the way, Jesus? What Thomas revealed about himself was that he wasn't a person to pretend that he had a faith that he didn't have. And folks, there are too many people in the church today who pretend to have a faith that they don't have. Because they don't ask the questions like Thomas asked. But it certainly gave Jesus the opportunity to make one of his greatest I am statements that summarizes God's way and only way to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man. Not one man, not one woman, not one boy, not one girl, not one person can come to the Father except through me. And in just a moment, we're going to take a piece of bread and a little cup of juice that are just symbols, but they're what they represent is what's precious here. Our remembering what Jesus Christ did following that night when he himself put his body on the cross for us and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. 
the most serious thing that we can do today is examine our hearts and say, Lord, I, I know that in, in, in just a, a moment of time, you can cleanse my heart because I want to remember what you did for me. That's why this table is, is for all of us, because we're all sinners. We need to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. And the fact that he was trailblazing for us on the cross to take us home. Does it make more sense now what Jesus said when he said, let not your heart be troubled? How many people are troubled tonight because they don't know where they stand with God or where they stand with Jesus? Let's get right then. Let's believe what he says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. You know what he did? He said what he did in truth to comfort his disciples whom he knew would go through a comfortless night. Jesus.